0: ...to the sons of men in other generations as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access
1: The accelerator if you're going to get done by Advent, which is what we're trying to do with the book of Ephesians. So we're covering the whole chapter, chapter 3 today. We took too long in chapters 1 and 2. But I want you to think this morning of Paul, the Apostle Paul, as a missionary. Do you think of Paul as a missionary? He was a lot of different things. He was a pastor. He was a church planter. He was a theologian. He was a preacher. But if you ask Paul, using our language today, what do you think that you are? Chances are he would have said... A missionary because Paul felt his life's work was to take the message of the gospel and proclaim it to people who had never heard it before. Simply put and without exaggeration, Paul is the greatest missionary in the history of the church. And this is why I say that. In the year 40, let's say, in the decade after Jesus had risen from the dead, in Turkey and Greece and Italy no churches, right? There's a church in Jerusalem, there's the forming of a church in Antioch, west of there, no churches. By the time Paul writes the letter to the Romans, maybe 20 years later, Paul can say, there's no room for me to do missions anymore. There's too many churches. And Paul had been the one that planted most of them, And the people that had heard from Paul had gone out into the surrounding areas and planted these churches so that at the end of Romans, Paul says, look, my life's mission is to preach where there is no other foundation, where people do not know Christ. And to do that, I've got to get out of the known world. I've got to go west to Spain, and I would love for you to support me on my journey there. That's how the book of Romans ends. So Paul is this transformational, powerful cross-cultural missionary, taking the gospel to the ends of the known world, learning about people and cultures and adapting the gospel to that culture so that they can believe and come to know the living God. And I say he's probably the most successful because every church that we now know of that doesn't descend from Jerusalem has something to do with the Apostle Paul, a phenomenal, God-inspired, spirit-driven missionary. Last week, Laura and I were at a conference called the Godward Life Conference up in Minneapolis. And I just want to say, first of all, what a wonderful job Terry Trammell did here last week. If you were here, I love Terry's preaching. I love getting to listen to it this week. I also love somebody that can jump in in your series, preach the text, and proclaim what God is saying from the Word. It's just awesome to have someone like that who's been a really big part of our church throughout history of our church. And before I got here, and I love to continue that. But we were so filled up at this conference. We just had the best time. We learned a lot. We also got to have a lot of great conversations. On Sunday morning, we really missed being here, which I think is a great sign. You're somewhere else, and we're like, I just kind of wish we were at home at Carlton Landing. And uh, we didn't make the most of it, though. We went to a 9 a.m. service, then we got in an Uber and went to an 11 a.m. service, because we were trying to see as much as we could. And at this conference, they gave out one of the books that they gave out, was the 30th anniversary edition of a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. And if you've ever heard of this book before, I think this is one of these seminal books on missions. It was written, obviously, 30 years ago by John Piper. And Piper, one of the things that they are known for that we saw this weekend, is planting churches, sending missionaries, taking what they have in their church, and spreading it out to the ends of the earth so that people can come to know God. And I remember when I first read that book, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, just being struck by the opening line. I'd never thought about missions this way before. The book begins and it says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Okay, this flipped missions on its head for me. Missions is not the end goal of the church. The Great Commission is not the end goal of the church. It is the mission of the church to accomplish the goal, which is worship from all the peoples of the earth. Notice in the book of Revelation, it doesn't end with a big celebration of... Missions, or the Great Commission, it ends with people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, worshiping God before his throne, celebrating him, glorifying him together. And the way that we're going to get there is missions. Whether missions is international to an unreached people group, or it's to your family members and friends and co-workers, the Great Commission serves the end of there are people who should be worshiping God who are not. Missions, Paul's whole life goal was to bring in the Gentiles to worship God forever. So Paul sees his life as one long effort to capture something that has been lost, to bring back people who need to be part of the family of God, and what we call this is missions. And so if you're listening to this text in Ephesians 3, one of the things you realize is this is a missionary text, right? This is a really common passage to go to to talk about why is it that as Christians we aren't just saved for ourselves, we're given a calling to go and evangelize. Why why is that? Well, it's because of what Paul says here, that his life was transformed to transform the lives of others. And I could feel, it was just such a great thing when this happens, and you've had this happen in your life, where things that you've been praying for and especially our elder team together, things that we've been praying for, how can we impact the people around us? How can we do local service and foreign global missions well as a church? We've been praying for that for six months and thinking about how that's going to happen in our context. Then we go and we hear about this, I'm thinking about this, and we come to this text and I think, this is something I want to invite you to pray into with us whether you're here every week or you're just here for this weekend and never come back, would you begin to pray for your own life and for our life as a church about what God has for us in missions? Who should we be sending? Who should be going? Who should we be supporting? What what people group needs us? They've been put on our heart in our church and we're gonna do something about it. Would you begin praying today, this week, What God is putting on our hearts for missions. Because every church, as you're going to see in this passage, every church and every person is called to be a part of the effort to bring all the Gentiles, which basically just means everyone that you know, back to God. So Paul begins with a little autobiographical part of this text. He says, For this reason I... Paul, and then he's going to stop. And in some of your Bibles, you have a dash, and some of them you have, a, you have a comma. And what is so interesting about this text is he says, for this reason, I, Paul, and he's going to go on a big diversion, a big autobiographical diversion, and he's going to pick up that prayer in verse 14. So you look at verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he says a bunch of other stuff for several verses, and then in verse 14, for this reason, as I was saying, I bow my knees before the Father. And you get an interplay in this passage that is just essential to the Christian life. You get what God has said and then what we say to God back about what he said. And so this morning I just have two parts to the message, which is what is it that grounds Paul's prayer? What is it that we need to know? And then what is it that we need to pray? What is it that we need to know in verses 1 through 13? And then what is it we need to pray in verses 14 through 21? So Paul begins, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he's got to tell you something that you need to know in order that you can pray what it is that Paul wants to pray. And Paul's going to talk about his own life as a picture of what it means to be on mission. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, now a prisoner of Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. So Gentiles here, we just mean anybody who's not a Jew which, like I said, would be pretty much everybody you know. Everybody in the Western world for the most part, everybody in the East for the most part. For Paul, it was a much bigger live question because Paul was a Jew. But I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, on behalf of the Gentiles, assume that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. That's in chapters one and two. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, pre Christ, but now has been made known to the apostles and to the prophets by the Spirit. Of this gospel, verse 7, I was made a minister according to God's grace to me, though I am the very least of the saints. I want you to think for a moment about how much of a life change had to occur for Paul to write these words. Think about who Paul used to be. Paul says that he was, he was going past everyone in his generation in the pursuit of his faith, which at that point was Judaism, pursuing God, obeying the commandments. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was pure-blooded. He had pure vision. He was trying to make sure that Judaism, strict adherence to the law, was protected from people like Christians who are saying that there's a Savior and Gentiles and everybody else can be a part of it. Paul is putting people in prison for saying this. So it's ironic, he says, I now a prisoner, the one who used to put people in prison, I now a prisoner on behalf of Christ, the one that he was trying to stamp out for the sake of you Gentiles who he didn't used to believe had any claim to a relationship with God. I, Paul, someone whose eyes have been opened in every single way, now imprisoned, on behalf of Christ, am reaching out to you Gentiles so that you know the mystery that's been hidden for all the ages. And you know what the mystery is? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. This is the kind of thing Paul was trying to kill people for saying. And it's the exact kind of thing that Paul's going to end up being killed for a few years after this. I, Paul, and you've heard of my radical transformation, have a message for you. And in this first part, everything builds up to verse 10. And I want for a moment, just if you've read this before, if you've thought about this before, I want you to see from a fresh mindset how weird this verse is. So he says, I, Paul, have been made a messenger, an apostle, I've been given grace to preach this message, to bring to light, verse 9, for everyone what is the plan of God, the mystery hidden for the ages, so that, and here's like the thesis statement of this whole section, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, this is an odd verse. This is very strange to say this. And so what we might expect Paul to say is, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the Gentiles, right? Or so that the church might display the wisdom of God to the world. Or so that people would come to know the living God. There's a lot of things that we could expect Paul to say here. But that's not what he says. Look at what he says. He says, so that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might need made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Something supernatural. He wants to display the wisdom of God not to people, but to rulers and authorities superseding what's going on on earth. This is strange. This is like we're overhearing a conversation that we're not a part of. Right? This, is, this is things beyond us, and Paul says, one of the purposes of the church is to display to the heavenly powers how wise God is and how great his plan is. So for a minute, let's dive into what this actually means. Right? I love what Terry Trammell said last week. I hope you brought your life jackets, because this is going to get a little bit deep here. What is a ruler and an authority in the heavenly places? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to say, where does Paul use this elsewhere? What could Paul mean by this in other texts? And sure enough, if we're looking for what are the powers and authorities in the heavenly places, the first place to start is in Ephesians itself. In Ephesians chapter 2, which two weeks ago we talked about, you were dead and now you've been made alive with Christ. Right? This is one of the triumphant passages in the New Testament of you used to be dead. But God saw you in that condition, and he breathed new life into you so that now you are alive forever with him. But don't miss this detail. One of the qualities of being spiritually dead, one of the qualities of being apart from God, is not just that we were making our own choices, rebelling against God, living in the passions of our flesh. If you look at chapter two, there's two strange things in here that start to make sense when you look at chapter three, in chapter 6, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the children of disobedience. Okay, you read that the first time, you're like, what in the world is this talking about? The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in, in those... Sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul mentions these same powers again in chapter 6. He says, We need to put on the whole armor of God. We need to stand firm against the enemy, the schemes of the devil, in chapter 6, verse 11. And he says that we need to take up the armor because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, verse 12, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. The battle that goes on for your soul. The disobedience that we walked in, the fight that we have as Christian people is not just an earthly fight. Right? What Paul's saying in these verses is there's more going on for the hearts of men and women in the world than just what's going on on the world. Right? There is a supernatural realm that is warring at all times. And what the people believed in this time was that there was God who was the God of Israel, and you see this all over the Old Testament, and then there are all these other regional gods. right? So one of the reasons when the Israelites come into the land of Canaan, one of the reasons they have to do what they do is so that they don't end up worshiping the gods of Canaan. right? God is so clear to them in the wilderness. It's not really for them to wander because they don't know where they're going. It's because the gods that the Egyptians worshipped had too much sway over the Israelites. And before they came into the promised land, he says, you guys are going to forget. I know it. You're going to forget. That's why the most common command in Joshua and in Judges and in Deuteronomy is, remember. Remember who God is. Because when you go to Canaan, they have different gods there. And they do things really different than the God of Israel. People there, they're going to sacrifice their kids to the gods. They're going to have cult prostitutes for the gods. They're going to do things that you as an Israelite should never do. Those authorities and those powers are vying to rule the world against God. right? And One of the messages of the Old Testament is there's only one God. There are not regional gods vying for God's power that maybe they're going to win or maybe God's going to win. No, there's only one God. God. He is triumphant over all rulers and all authorities and all powers. And now in the New Testament we have Paul saying, so one of the things that God is doing is demonstrating that there are rival ways to rule the world. Using power, using people, killing people, taking advantage of people. There are other ways among the nations that those powers and authorities have sought to displace the God of the universe. But As Paul is saying, God has flipped the worldly powers on their head through the church. Through the church. Now, what is it about the church that might display the wisdom of God to the entire world? Right in 1 Corinthians chapter 2... Paul, again, talks about these powers and authorities. And there he makes it even more explicit. What has God done to show his wisdom to the world? Well, in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, it says, these powers don't understand the wisdom of God because if they did, they would not have put to death the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It says, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man has imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. What the powers and authorities don't get is the way that God plans to unite the world is not through overt conquest. It's not through all the other means that these powers have used. It is through a humble, suffering, self-giving sacrifice Of his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God is the way that he will triumph over his enemies is by turning his enemies into his friends, right? Is by redeeming people from all over the world and reuniting them together as a church, as a family, as a gathered people who are now united around the cross of Christ. One of the commentators says on this passage the mystery is disclosed in the church. And through her is being made known to these very powers that their malign regime, particularly over that part of humanity, the Gentile world, thought to be especially under their sway has now come to an end through Christ. God's plan, his accomplishment through Jesus it says in 1 Corinthians 2122 20, the Jews seek signs that's a cultural power for them the Greeks seek wisdom but we preach Christ and him crucified which is a sign of the wisdom and the power of God so what is God doing putting his wisdom on display to the powers and authorities what he is doing is he is putting forward a group of people who are reconciled and united and vibrant, and kind, and gracious, and on mission as the end for which he created all things. God demonstrates his wisdom in your life when you love your enemy, when you give grace, when you forgive, when you are united with someone that you have nothing in common with other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. God displays the wisdom of his plan for the world against any other plan for the world. So See, what Paul is saying here is, I, somebody who used to be under the sway of one of these powers believing that if I could just suppress the truth long enough, then we would be dominant, have now come to see that if you serve Jesus, you have been enlisted into the mission of God to bring the greatest family reunion that's ever happened into being. Paul gave his life for this. It was a building project that he embarked on, that he was recruiting people to be a part of, bringing about the obedience of faith, bringing about the reconciliation of two peoples who hated each other back together to show the wisdom of God in the world. And I'll tell you this, God is still showing off his wisdom when people who formerly hate each other, are divided from each other, are separated from each other, come together at the foot of the cross. There is nothing that displays the wisdom of God more than the unity of the church around his son, Jesus Christ. Right To go back to the very beginning of what we talked about, missions exist so that people from the most diverse backgrounds, people from historically uh, warring groups of people would now come to worship the living God together. That's the wisdom of God that's being made known in the church, is that we are a sign of what it means to be redeemed and reconciled and united in Christ. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, this is what I'm giving my life to. These are the things that I've been put on mission for, and these are the things that I want you to be involved in with me as well. Now Paul does something in this next passage that is an essential part of every Christian life, but it is a forgotten part of the Christian life. In fact, we live in a kind of a life hack world, right? If you ever go on social media at all, you are bound to see something like, you know, how to get rich and retire by age 17 with this one simple trick, right? Or how to lose 40 pounds and feel your best and look amazing with this one simple trick. And every time you see that, you have to say to yourself, if it was that simple, everybody would be doing it. If it was that simple, I would already be doing it. But it's not that simple, right? Which is why people are saying it. We live in a world that thinks the easy way, the simple way, the one thing that can really change things is going to be the thing that does it. And it never lives up to it. But I want to tell you this morning, there is one simple thing that if you would do it in your spiritual life, And it's what Paul does in this passage. If you would change this one thing in your life, you'll be amazed at what God does in your heart. Here's what it is. Take the things that you know and pray them into reality. Take the things that you know about God, that you know he's called you to do, that he knows are true about you, and begin to pray them out into reality. This is the easiest thing, but for some reason, we don't do it. Most Christians, when you think of prayer, you think of prayer requests, praying for other people, praying for yourself. That's awesome. This is not instead of that. This is in addition to that and hopefully before that because what you need in order to pray well for other people is to see yourself and what God has called you to do clearly. So what what you need to do is what Paul does here. He says, this is this amazing mission that God has called everyone on and God, would you put us on mission? Would you begin to turn our hearts to really care about this? Because here's the thing, how are we going to reach the world for Christ? We're not if we don't start by praying that God would make us people who want to reach the world for Christ. There are certain things in your life that God will only do if you pray for them. He has ordained the world. This is dense theologically to think about how does this work, how is God in control, and we have responsibility and all of that, but the simple point is God has made you and made the world in a certain way that he will not do certain things in your life until you pray about them, until you ask him, until you repeatedly come to him and say, God, how can we grow into people who share our faith? Pray for it. Pray for it. Ask God for it. How can we care about the things that God cares about? Pray for it. Ask God to do that in your heart. The only way to live the life described in this chapter is to do what Paul does, which is to ask God to make it true in your life. So what Paul does is he turns, and now he's back to his prayer. For this reason, I, Paul, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That's the reconciling of all the families on earth, right? This is the wisdom of God, that there's one big family in heaven and on earth that's named for their father, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He begins to say, okay, if you're going to undertake this, you're not just going to need your best day, you're going to need God's best through you, Ask God that he would strengthen you with the power you need to accomplish this. You know, you may have heard the saying that a goal is just a dream until it's written down. Have you ever heard this? A goal is just a dream until it's written down. This is a, a good life motto. But what Paul's saying here is godliness is just a fad until you pray it, right? Life transformation is just like a yo-yo diet until you commit to pray each day for what God is going to do through you. So we ask God each day for four things. First, we ask, as Paul does, would we be strengthened by the power of God in our spirit? That according to his riches, he says in verse 16, in glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through spirit in your inner being. We need the power of God desperately in our lives. And I think sometimes we, we um, underestimate the power of God that's available in your life. You know, I always chuckle a little bit when I read Psalm 18, which is a Psalm of David, and he's talking about what it feels like when God shows up in your life, right? When God does something, you kind of have that mountaintop experience. It's like when kids try on shoes at the shoe store, and they take off running, they're like, I'm so much faster in these. It's like you feel faster, You might be a little faster, but you feel faster. And David's talking about what it feels like when God shows up and does something in your life. And he says, by my God, I can charge after an army. I can leap over a wall. God makes me quick as a deer. And he says, my hands can bend a bow of bronze because of God's help. Sounds kind of like a proto-power team type thing to me. If you guys remember those guys that are like breaking bats and rolling up frying pans all for the glory of God and ripping phone books and stuff. I mean, these guys, I don't know what the point of that was, but I loved it as a kid because it was like, look what you could do with God's help. But what Paul's saying is there's something way better than physical strength that comes from following God. In fact, what he's saying is, do you want to live on mission for God? Do you want to do really hard things like saying no to temptation? Taking something that you've been trapped in for your whole life, an addiction, a pattern, a trajectory, and say no to it? Do you want to be a new kind of person? Do you want to share your faith? Do you want to love the unlovable people in your life? Do you want to follow the commands of God? If you're going to do that, you're going to need the strength that only God can supply. Do you want to give your life away to what God has called you to do? Then you're not going to be able to do it on your own. You're going to have to pray, God, Give me the power, the strength of your spirit in the inner being. And the second thing is just like it. Not only the strength of the spirit, but that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. God, would you put Christ at the center of everything in my life so that I begin to see things through his lens and not my own. We need to pray every day that we would be strengthened by God's grace, that we would have Christ in our hearts, that we would be built up in him. And then he says that you might have the strength, that you might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Here's a prayer. God, would you show me today the height and depth and width and length of your love for me. Did you know that in order to grasp God's love for you, you need God's help? Right? His love is ungraspable by human standards. It, the only way we can do it is to pray to God, would you help me to understand how much you love me? I was counseling a guy a couple of months ago. He comes to me, he's got all these sin problems in his life. And one of the things that I think is the most important thing to do is just listen for the background. We all have sin problems in our life, but a lot of times they have different root issues. And so I was trying to get down to what is the root issue here. And the more we talked about background and the more we talked about what was going on, it just became very apparent to me this person doesn't believe that God really loves them. This person kind of believes that if they'll do enough stuff, maybe God will be happy with them but they don't really believe that God loves them. So we start talking about it. I said, you know what? Probably the best thing you can do is every day, every meal, just start breakfast, lunch, and dinner, would you just start praying, God, would you show me today how much you love me? And he said, that kind of sounds like a selfish prayer. I said, it would be a selfish prayer if God hadn't commanded us to pray it. God's the one who put this on the line. I will show you how much I Love you. This is why Galatians 2.20 is such a great verse. I told him, you got to memorize this verse. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I was like, if you get that, everything else is going to take care of itself. Sure enough, month after month after month, he comes back this was just little, I'm almost kind of embarrassed to say it, but I think I felt God really loving me in this way this week. And you know what? I I think I saw something about God's love for me this week in this. Month after month after month, his sense of God's love for him grew, his love for sin shrank. This is the way your heart is wired to work. God, would you help me to understand How much you love me. Would you give me the strength, it says in this passage, with all the saints to understand the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of your love for me. And here's the thing. You'll never be able to share something that you haven't experienced. You will never be able to talk to someone convincingly about following Christ. You'll never hit the mission field. You will never be able to share your faith if you don't understand on a heart level what God has done for you through his great Love in his son Jesus. Like a couple of weeks ago, when we moved into our new house, we had to get our Wi Fi installed, which I won't say much more about because we want to say only things that are kind and building up. And uh, if you guys have ever seen that insurance commercial where it's like people become their parents, you know, they have the, the doctor guy on there who's helping people not become their parents. <laughs> One of the scenes in there is a guy who's got somebody working on his sink. And the guy guy is laying down next to him, looking at the sink, and the doctor guy comes by and he says, you're not assisting him, you hired him, right? And uh, that resonates with me, because a couple of weeks ago, I was up on a second ladder with the guy who was on a ladder, installing our Wi-Fi, talking to him about our Wi-Fi. And I was asking him all these questions about it, because I really want to understand you know, what kind of service we're getting and what to expect and everything, and I mean, I've been with him for 30 minutes at this point, and I'm just like, how's the signal? You know, what's the download speed that you're getting? And can you stream from multiple devices and not have any lag? And so finally, he goes, look, he's like, I don't have Cross. I just contract with them. And I was like, wow, that is so revealing, okay? Now, we don't have a choice. We only have one company, so I was kind of up a river at that point, but it was so revealing to me that where he lives, he doesn't have this service. He just installs it for other people, right? He just works for them. It's like, look, man, I wish I could answer your questions, but I never experienced this. I just do it for a living, and I wonder that guy would make a terrible missionary for Wi-Fi. Okay, <laughs> he he would be. He's like. He is like their worst ambassador. Now, I will give him the credit, it took like 30 minutes of pestering for this truth to come out, but it came out that he doesn't really believe in what he's installing. I mean, he does enough to take a paycheck, but not enough to use it in his own home. And the problem for a lot of us is, that's kind of how we approach the love of God. For me, it's like, yeah, I talk about the love of God all day long, but When something terrible happens, is that what you use in your home? Like, is that the thing that you rest on, or do you have something else that's like, yeah, when things really go wrong for us, it's like love of God and all these other fix-it mechanisms that we have, right? Do you have somebody that the longer they press and the longer they press and the more they pester and the more they get down deep, they just see, no, it's just more and more and more the love and the strength God. Like the more you press these people, the more that comes out is they really believe what they claim to believe. They really do trust in Him. They really do feel the love of God. The bottom of their life really is this foundation of the strength of God, the strength of the Spirit, the trust in Christ, the height and width and length and depth of the love of God that surpasses knowledge. Knowledge. They don't just know about it. They've experienced it. They live it. It runs through their veins. These people are God's love people. Right, that's the only way to do what Paul's calling us to do here. That you would comprehend more than just knowing about it, that you would experience the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And maybe all of us need to pray that into reality in our life. Now here's the last thing: that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. This is such an ambitious thing to pray for. You remember when Moses asks if he can see God's glory? And when Elijah asks if they can see God's glory, do you remember what happened? God says, No, you can't see my glory, or you'll die. So what he does is puts him in the side of a rock and covers him up and gives him just a little glimpse of the backside. That's all they can see. And then Paul in the New Testament says, we're not like them. We're not like Moses who all he saw was the law and his face was shining and he had put a veil over it. We are beholding Christ face to face from one degree of glory to another every day of our life. We get to see God in his son, Jesus. And we can pray something as audacious as, and God, whatever you've filled me with so far, would you fill me with more? Would you give me all the fullness of who you are in my heart? Can I see you today in your fullness? Whatever you've done up to my, in my life up to this point, God, I want more of it. Give me the fullness of who you are. Now, this causes Paul to step out of prayer into worship. These are some of my favorite passages in the New Testament. What Paul does here is he prays this, and he almost can't go on. I almost think this is an interruption in what Paul is saying. He's praying, and he's asking God, and he's getting to the very tip of what he can conceive of to pray for. And God, we pray that we would see the fullness of who you are in us. And then he breaks out into praise. He says, now to him who is able to do far more Abundantly, then all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. You've been called to a mission that could never accomplish on your own. You've been given prayers by God. If, if I were you, here's what I would pray in passages like this. And if you do that, the result in your life and in my life is worship. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions in our life means understanding what God has laid out before us, this wisdom of God displayed not just on the world but in the heavenly realms, praying it into reality in our lives, asking God to do more than we could ever think and more than we can ever pray in our lives and breaking out into worship of the triune God forever. If we'll do this in our spiritual lives, if we'll do this every day, We make the transition from missions to worship with God forever. Let me pray. Father, we, like Paul, are sometimes at a loss for words for what exactly we want you to do in our lives. And so, Lord, I ask that this prayer would be a framework for us, that we would begin to ask you things that it doesn't even feel quite right to ask you, like, God, would you show us the fullness of your glory? God, would you help us to get our arms around your infinite love for us? Father, would you put down so deep in our hearts a foundation of your spirit and the power of your son that we would be empowered to do everything you call us to do? Father, I pray that you would turn hearts in this room towards the people who may be sitting here with us this morning who don't know you, that they too might come to know the depth and height and width and length of your love for them. Father, wouldn't it be amazing for us to get a glimpse of your plan for all the ages? Bring in the Gentiles. Bring in those who are far from you. Bring in those who read last week are without a name, who are far from you, who are not near to the grace of God. Would they come and be children, sons and daughters of God? Father, I pray that you would raise up in our church people who are willing to go and send and live on mission. Father, would you make us people who turn missions into praise, into worship forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray.